Hello and welcome to episode 134 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fan's weekly off-topic, on-topic podcast. I am Mike Solosi and I'm your host for today, and I am joined by, first, Dom Kim. Hello, hello. And second, Peter Treisenberg. Hello, everybody. Now, um, when I was previewing, previewing this episode in earlier episodes, I mentioned that Retro Encounter is usually a celebratory podcast. We're usually a positive podcast talk about things we like what um what what is great about these uh non-current games that we're talking about and uh and, and usually like when one of us appears on the retro encounter episode where we want to you know we're enthusiastic would you agree with that guys yeah yeah i think that's a fair assessment yeah, yeah. yeah no, normally we are happy podcasters excited to talk about video games mm-hmm. but today it all changes <laughs> Um, we don't love everything about video games. There are things that annoy us, things that, you know, get grind our gears. We have our RPG pet peeves, our RPG bereavances, bereavements, whoa, bereavances. I don't know what that word is. (laughs) We have our RPG bereavements. Um, so today shall be an airing of grievances. The three of us will each in turn talk about things about about RPGs or in RPGs that annoy us. Um, one caveat, we're not going to talk about other players. So stuff about that annoys us about people on the internet or, multi, or multiplayer in RPGs, we're not going to talk about that. We're only going to talk about what is in the games themselves. Is that, uh, is that fair, gentlemen? Yes, absolutely. It's not the game's fault that our healer sucks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, am I also assuming correctly that uh, we have some grievances worth airing, all three of us? Absolutely. I, in the in the grand scheme of things, maybe maybe not, but you know what? It's a video game podcast, and we're going to roll with some of this. Right on. Okay. <laughs> so now let's see. Who should we start with? Dom, uh, air your first grievance for us. Sure. So my first grievance would basically be mini-maps that are super difficult to sort of navigate or get an understanding of. And the most recent example of this is Nier Automata. Honestly, like, with when you have a world as big as Nier's, like, you know, it sort of becomes a habit that you just press the pause menu and then you just sort of check the map to get your bearings. But Nier Automata possibly has one of the worst mini-maps I have ever seen in the past, like, couple of years even, where, like, objective markers would like the depth perception on the map it's it tries to do that but it fails miserably because like the orange marker is like it's so hard to tell like where the orange marker is exactly pointing at and like the whole zoom function and the zoom out function it's just a complete mess and like I'm pretty sure that like half of my playtime in near was actually just trying to understand where the heck I am and what the heck I'm trying to get to. Yeah, I think the re- repetition in Nier Automata, you eventually you get your bearings and learn kind of where the wor- where to go in the world, but the map is I think almost deliberately unhelpful in terms of just getting you around at least initially. The, the actual main map is the topographical map which is uh also less than I mean it, it gives you like a general sense of go this way, but other than that it's not very good for parsing out quest objectives. No, and it doesn't help that it that like the maps are also just very just varying shades of like yellowish gray, and like it's like how like how do how are you supposed to understand where you are within this like 
enormous city when everything is just the same sort of shaded. I haven't played Nier Automata. Um, I did buy yeah. a used copy semi-recently, so it, that may happen soon. But uh, when you talk about um, mini-maps that are that are difficult to navigate, I immediately thought of the first Grandia for PS1 and Saturn, because yeah. uh, like because it's a you know it's a fairly early example of a 3D RPG that let you rotate a camera, and because the scenery is so geometric and the map is so bare bones that I think rotating the camera and trying to focus on the minimap made areas harder to navigate, and I accidentally left an area through the entrance. Like when I was trying to get through a dungeon or a map segment, way too often in that game. But uh, this was many years ago when I played it. But it was uh, I, I remember that thinking of that as like a bad mini map, and even a bare bones mini map that's just a circle with enemy dots on it, like Seventh Saga, would have been an improvement over to the Grandian nonsense. <laughs> so bad mini maps—that's something. Uh, Dom, can you? Uh, What's an example of a of a game with a good mini map that I that or at least a fix that might have solved uh, the near the mini map problem with Nier Automata? Honestly, I feel like if the if the map just had a better sort of objective pointer, like because the objectives in Nier Automata are marked with just a yellow like an orange dot, and it like that 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 dot has like it's really difficult to tell where it is exactly, like. <laughs> With all like the with like how vertical the maps are and near, mm, okay. And mm. I think it would have been much better if there actually was sort of like a three D sort of pointer like within the map to like really like help pinpoint like this this is exactly where it is and like maybe that would have also helped give a better like would have helped a bit with the depth perception issue that I had with the mini map as well in near. All right. Near Automata's mini map has some problems, but they might have been fixable problems. So, uh, I wanted to give I wanted to give one example of a of a a map that literally made me quit the game. <laughs> oh, oh, please uh, hit me. Uh, Pokemon Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. Huh. Um, weirdly enough, so this is the thing. Um, in Sun and Moon, the the first version of the game, they had they introduced the Rotom Pokedex, um, where you have a little uh, a Rotom, which is like a Pokemon that inhabits electronic devices. And it's like supposed to be your companion on the journey. It talks to you um, and uh, gives you advice. And uh, it's kind of a fun idea, right? But um, in Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon, they made it way more talkative. Except, And the problem is, is that it inhabits the bottom screen, which is the same screen as your mini-map is. And there is no way to tell it to shut up once it starts talking. And to check, if you want to check oh, your map and it decides it wants to say something, you're there for the entire thing you've heard it say a dozen times already because it only has like three at least when i stopped playing ultra moon it had a i i think i'd heard the same three or four seen the three same three or four lines of dialogue from rotom and i'm like all i want to do is see where i need to go next <laughs> now uh, uh peter that reminds me of something and i think i'll uh i'll take my turn next because one okay particular pet peeve of mine in RPGs is unskippable dialogue and unskippable cutscenes. <laughs> and oh, yes. and now seeing a cutscene for the first time, you probably want to see it. But if it's a situation where like, you know, you're at a save point before a boss battle, the boss battle's tough and maybe it yep. uh, takes you a few tries, having to see the same cutscene in the same dialogue before that scene over and over is maddening and maybe even worse. In situations like your Rotom Pokedex, Pokedex, where the dialogue is repetitive dialogue that you've heard before and keeps coming up, and you also mm -hmm. can't skip it. 
which I, I mean it's maddening. I'm not I'm not saying that like everything should be skippable at all times. I'm just saying most I think things. It no, I think it should. <laughs> That's I, I, fair. I think it should. <laughs> and uh, if, I mean, there's a lot of examples I could cite here. I mean, uh, uh, shoot, let's see. A lot, a lot of even traditional Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest games. I, it, whenever there's a final boss that. Uh, has you know that takes me more than one try to finish. There's a l- usually a lot of story stuff and dialogue that you know goes in hand with the boss. Like I, um, mm. Tyrant is a big offender in this regard, actually. Yeah, FF4 is pretty bad about it. Uh, one Dragon Quest game. I'm trying to remember which one it was. I think it was Dragon Quest 4 because I, I, uh, I died the first time I, uh, I fought uh, um, Necrosorrow, but. I didn't know that you could summon your wagon into the back, and uh, so like there was a lot I had to go through just to see him again, and uh, and, and this and this is not an example of this, but the the um, like the the final boss of Dragon Quest Two, there's no way to save in front of him. You have to go through two and a half dungeons just to get to the two final bosses. That's a whole different thing. Now, and and how to fix this? There's a very easy fix. You should be able to pause at any time, and during the pause screen, there should be a a button to let you skip that scene. Like if, like thinking on a PS, on a PlayStation controller, like it should be start to pause and then triangle to skip. So you're yeah, not, like, so, you, so you don't accidentally skip by pressing the circle button or something, and you mm-hmm. don't, and you, uh, and you don't accidentally skip when you're trying to pause. That like just a two button system to skip an unwanted cutscene or extra dialogue is fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, like I said, FF10 is a big offender in that regard because um. Uh, there's that really long speech before the Unaleska fight, which is one of the harder fights in the game. I feel like I saw that a couple times before I knew the trick to that fight. Um, 10-2's final boss has a really long one. Um, and uh, really, the weirdest... this is And this one that was actually fixed in the HD re-release, but the original Kingdom Hearts became kind of the poster child for this problem because the, the, the really long cutscene before the fight with Riku, which is a really tough fight... And uh, I think by that point, like, you'll just be angrily mimicking the dialogue while you go make your sandwich and wait for the cutscene to end. <laughs> no, there's no way you're taking Kyrie's heart. Mm. This is not selling me on ever playing uh, Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> but if, you play it on, if you play it on PS3 or PS4, you can skip the cutscenes. They fortunately added that functionality to Kingdom Hearts 1. So but saying I can not... skip, I can skip every cutscene. But they did not add that functionality to FF10's HD re-releases for reasons that baffle me. So Final Fantasy X, um, you're still going to have to mute the TV and go make food while you're waiting for uh, Titus to stop talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, muting the TV and making food sounds just better than playing Kingdom Hearts in general. But uh, that's for another podcast. <laughs> uh, Peter, do you have a specific griev- grievance to bring up um, for your first of the episode? Specific grie- I'm going to go with um, a type of side quest I like to call the Find My Pants quest. I actually can't ah. take credit for that. I think that originated on a random encounter. Fine- Basically, your, your side quests, you'll run into games, games where... You'll talk to an NPC, and the NPC is like, Hi, legendary hero who has very important legendary hero things to do. I left my pants in the dungeon. Would you please go get them for me? I will give you ten gold. Um, this just these kind of rinse and repeat, repetitive, go find the thing and bring it back to the guy quest that don't add anything of substance to the game other than just another item on your checklist. 
right, Final Fantasy 15, I think, is um, just to give a recent example, is pretty a pretty bad offender in this regard. Um, uh, 15 being one of the first Final Fantasy game really to go like full open world. They really try to pack that game with content, but most of the quests um, are just your bog standard to go find the thing quests, <laughs> and they're really annoying. I experienced uh, some frustrating pants finding quests uh, recently when I played uh, Tokyo Xanadu on the Vita last year. Because <laughs> there's a, I mean, in, in that game, there's you know like dim- alternate dimension stuff starts opening around town and people keep getting trapped in it and you're rescuing them and that's for the most part okay. But there's a lot of I, I I put my backpack down for a second but now it's gone and then like you and your school friends exchange knowing glances goes ah. That his backpack went into the other dimension, and then and you have to like replay a dungeon that you played that you played you know two chapters ago just to pick up this fool's backpack, and well. they, 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 there's like one of at least one or two of those every chapter by the midpoint of the game, and they don't get better. They're, 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 and the dialogue in that game is so sort of you know without substance that it it doesn't it's not really fun or rewarding. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the prizes, like the in-game rewards, are usually okay in that game. But it's just, but they they're complete, like completely meaningless side quests that seem like unnecessary distractions from you yeah. probably trying to save the world. Yeah, <laughs> not a fan of those. <laughs> uh, but, Elder Scrolls too. Like uh, Skyrim had that like procedural oh yeah what, that system that could generate new quests, but it was all like your generic cookie cutter like go find the, my pot lids in the <laughs> cave with the Draugr thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones that are with the Thieves Guild and the, uh, um, and, and the, uh, what, is, what was the Assassin's Guild called? Oh, like the best side quest in the game? Shoot. The Brotherhood? Dark yeah, Brotherhood? The brother, yeah, the Dark Brotherhood. Yeah. yeah, the Dark Brotherhood and the Thieves Guild quests that are repetitive are at least cool and tied into a larger part of the story. But yeah, just a new person in every town accosting you to find their you know, their, their lost cow or whatever is, you know, I, I think that RPGs, especially big ones that have a lot of side quests, could do with less of those. And, I mean, it, it pains me to say it because we just did, we recently recorded an episode where we talked about how great this game was. Breath of the Wild side quests are pretty bad. <laughs> um, a, a lot of them are pretty bad. Like, I, I don't, like, um, <laughs> no, I, I enjoy Breath of the Wild a lot. There are a lot of you know, completely em- ca- empty calorie side quests in that in that game, but sometimes they're pretty funny. Like, <laughs> there are, there are some, and there are some good ones, like the shrine quests in general. Are oh, no, really the, good. yeah, and, and those are and those are because I mean the rewards are are good, and uh, and in, in addition to the uh, you know the the trappings around them being interesting. But when a quest doesn't have a big reward and seems completely meaningless in the big picture, that's I mean, why is that even in the game? And I feel like that's really the solution to to jump ahead to uh, how you would how we would redress this problem. I think quest design in RPGs is one of those things where to make a side quest interesting, you want it to either a add something to the world it takes place in, like have a good story to tell um, or something mm-hmm. that is worth the player's time to experience, or reward them really well with um with something that's worth the time investing in it, not just like here's a token bit of gold and a paltry xp boost um like give me something good give me a give me a shrine give me a new weapon give me something you know and uh, also and, speaking of games we've played recently um in planescape torment there's a lot of side content and side dialogue 
but basically almost every interaction in the game will affect your alignment and will oh. yield an EXP reward, even if there's no physical reward. And, and you, get, you get experience more from dialogue than from combat in that game. So, it's, so like, that is a game that encourages talking to everyone and engaging in side quests and completing them just beca- because, I mean, they sort of become the game at times. But right, right. I think it's enough talking about, you know, locating items of missing clothing. Um, Dom, do you have another grievance to air for the podcast? Uh, yeah, uh, mine would basically be sort of overpowered AI and... Um, specifically, um, I aired this grievance because I've been playing through Mass Effect 3 recently okay. on um, Insanity Difficulty. And, like, I, like, playing through the, like, when I started up the game again, I was like, oh, how, like, how bad can this game be? I remember quitting it, like, like, just quitting my second playthrough a couple, like, years ago. But, like, how bad was it, really? And I played it on Insanity, and I was like, oh, it was really this bad, where... You know, on Insanity, the AI sort of, you know, you pop your head out of cover and then all of a sudden every single sort of unit instantly locks their guns on you and fires the perfect amount of bullets to, like, kill you or your squad mates or whatever. And it's just an absolute sort of completely unfair, really. Like, no matter how much they want to, like, maybe, like, thematically fit the Reapers sort of being, you know, sentient overlords of a life form in the universe, you know, like... Come on, give me a, throw me a bone here, Bioware. I want to finish the game. Like enemy AI that has you know perfect dodge timing, or enemy AI that seems to ignore fog of war or stealth mm-hmm. when uh, when you have to you know play by their rules of fog of war and stealth. It can be real frustrating. I, I don't know if I have a great, a good specific example I can think of for this, but yeah, especially on higher difficulty stuff when like when it seems like a game is breaking its own rules in order to kill you, just just is a terrible feeling. And I think the most like ridiculous part about Mass Effect 3's like like high end AI is that um the animation cancel. I'm not even kidding. Like the um like the Geth rocket troopers, they like they fire a rocket and then they have a set delay before they can fire a rocket again. But like the thing is like in um in in multiplayer at least you could sort of animate you can sort of animation cancel your reloads and stuff but the thing is in mass effect 3 the geth rocket troopers on insanity they like they fire a rocket and then they animation cancel that like their (laughs) reload time by like ducking into cover and ducking back out so they immediately (laughs) fire a second rocket they picked up some tricks from the player base (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're just instantly dead out of like nowhere, and oh, your screen is just like exploded. And you're like, "All right, I guess, I guess that's this save file. That's just I'm done with." So, as opposed to ways of fi- fixing that, I mean, just like you know, keep your AI on a leash. Game developers, jeez. <laughs> you're uh, those do the Fire Emblem games typically have? Because I'm I I am I'm I, I'm trying to I'm naming the tar- targeting this question at you, Mike. But uh, because I haven't I played Awakening and. A bit, and uh, there were definitely times on the higher difficulty settings where the AI seemed to like they they seemed to know the map better than you do. Um, yes. Uh, in in lower difficulties, AI, uh, basically Fire Emblem AI will always fire uh, fit certain behaviors. Like certain enemies will always move towards your characters, and certain enemies will always wait until your characters are in range, or or uh, or wait and simply sit in a base and not attack. But with uh, 
on, on higher difficulties, uh, there's more enemies, and they have, and they will specifically target weaker units, or or and specifically target advantage units more, and also, uh, in in but I, they do play in ways that aren't fair when you go on mania difficulty, but 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 the highest difficulty of Fire Emblem games are, just aren't fun anymore. It's usually called mania or manic or uh, or insane, I think. But like, uh, like Fire Emblem Hard Mode is exactly the right amount of challenging enemy placement in AI. But when they get to the the highest difficulties, they sort of become omniscient. They might ignore Fog of War for all I know. For but only a handful of Fire Emblem maps ever have Fog of War. Maybe one or two a game. And uh, like, I I don't think it's as egregious as a game breaking its own rules like these Geth Rocket Troopers might be doing, but it's, uh, it, it, like, Fire Emblem enemy AI can get brutal on the highest difficulty level, which is why I usually play on the second highest difficulty level. <laughs> but uh, I guess it's, uh, it's my turn again. Um, this is a, a... You know, I'll stay in the world of Fire Emblem for a while. Uh, in RPG combat, sometimes enemies will do something that I call a battle surprise... Where, uh, and then speaking in Fire Emblem for, specifically, in some Fire Emblem games, enemy reinforcements can appear at specific intervals and then immediately take a turn after they appear. So you'll be doing, you'll be, you know, you'll be playing well, and you're, uh, you know, you're doing well in the in the battle, and your heavy units are in the front protecting your mages and your light units in the in the rear. But then suddenly, enemy enforcements appear from the rear, attack the same turn, and your mages and your healer is dead or something. That oh yes, <laughs> that seems like something unfair that you can't prepare for unless you know that those reinforcements are coming at the end of turn five or whenever they come. That's what I mean by battle surprise. Something that is. Um, unpredictable and and total and very punishing that um, happens for a reason that isn't telegraphed and is outside of player control. So, like surprise reinforcements in Fire Emblem, or uh, you know, like the enemy doing suddenly doing a one-hit kill super attack that doesn't have any you know uh, that is com- that comes out of left field and anything like that it counts as a battle surprise. And I freaking hate battle surprises. The um the call for help mechanic they introduced in Gen Seven in Pokemon Sun Moon Ultra Sun Ultra Moon, um that that's kind of it's not like it's not it's not going to kill you so much as it is really annoying and it turns a lot of battles especially into into battles of attrition because um what some wild Pokemon will do is they'll call for assistance and randomly another another Pokemon of that same type um will show up and you can't catch the Pokemon that you were trying to, to whittle down its health until you defeat the other Pokemon. Um, and now <sighs> this thing has help. And in gen- and at least in, it, it wasn't as bad in Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. I think they rebalanced it a little bit, but in when I played Moon for the first time, I think I got into some battles where like a thing would just, it would just call for help like every turn. Oh, until, like, like, like you'd make you, I'd like, like I had a, I think it was, it was, I guess a water type. It was raining. Um, so I'm I'm thunder I'm using I'm I had I had a Raichu so I'm like thunderbolting this fish this fish creature, and every single turn I I beat one it calls for another one I beat one calls for another one beat one calls for like I just want to throw a pokeball at you I don't have time for this yeah wow I'm I'm glad I haven't played a and Pokemon then, game that has that and the bosses the bosses in um the totem Pokemon in uh Sun and Moon. 
during at the end of each trial, you'll fight a giant um, super Pokemon called a totem Pokemon. Um, they can all call for help, and th- that that becomes part of the boss fight. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating, and I don't like it. <laughs> oh, um, while we're at it, I just wanted to air my grievance, particularly about um, Awake Fire Emblem Awakenings chapter thirteen. I think it was it was it was the one where you're at the fighting at the root of the tree. And okay, yeah, I, I remember the tree. Yeah, and like up until that point, reinforcements have were generally, you know, just like four to five flyers on the map that appeared. So like, you know, when the general shouted out, oh, we have reinforcements coming, I was like, all right, I guess I should expect like four to five flyers again. Yeah, it's usually, and, it's usually flyers or cavalry or barbarians yeah. coming from the mountains. Yeah. Yeah, and then I'm like, all right, so I sort of, I, I tried to like position my troops appropriately. But then the reinforcements arrive, and it's just, like, a shitload of archers and stuff. And it's something <laughs> I'm totally not prepared for. They completely just nuke my flyers out of the sky. And, you know, like, they just slaughter the rest of my army. Because, like, I was not prepared for this at all. Yeah, so... it's it's like, instead of, <laughs> instead of you know, engaging the enemy based on the map, you have to restart the fight and then engage the enemy with advanced knowledge that there's going to be a bunch of archers in the lo- appearing in the lower right on turn five. It's yeah. it, like reinforcements in Fire Emblem are sometimes just part of the chapter and part of the map, and sometimes they you know it's they're breaking their own rules, and you have and you have to you know go into the fight with advanced knowledge in order to properly survive it. It's it it, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, and like yeah, because and that was like that was like my like I was. Like, you know, I was trying out, since Awakening was my first Fire Emblem game, I was trying out Classic Mode, where, like, it's permadeath. And I was like, all right, well, that's, I'm just going to delete that save file then. <laughs> I don't have an earlier save than this, so. Yeah, my, um, multiple save files is uh, is usually a good idea with Fire Emblem games. I, I've yeah. play, I haven't played all of them. I've played, I want to say, five or six games in the series. Oh, no, I guess six or seven. And uh, two of them were Japan-only titles that I played translations of. And, man, those older Fire Emblem games are rough and unforgiving with uh with reinforcements and and like awakening is one of the more forgiving games in the series by a long shot but uh that's enough talking about battle surprises uh peter do you have a new grievance for us to discuss you know i have one that kind of feeds into battle surprises um the concept of ambushes in rpgs um i think those are uh in, in more in more recent games um i think this has actually already been redressed in a lot of ways for from games where whether or not you get a battle advantage or a, or an ambush is wally determined on whether or not the enemy you are able to get a preemptive hit on an enemy like that you mm-hmm. see in the wild that actually that actually I'm that I'm okay with what I'm not okay with is in a lot of older games where um whether or not you are ambushed is wally dependent on the rng at the start of the fight um, right yeah and I mean, I may have, I, I, I just, I have lost my patience for that whole concept. I think it's dumb. There's nothing you can do about it, especially in games like Shin Megami Tensei, um, where uh, getting ambushed can, can literally just, can just party wipe you because you'll get, you'll get hit by, you'll get hit by an elemental weakness and the enemies just all gang up on you. Like in Digital Devil Saga. When yeah, we geez. That. Yeah, we, we played that last year and, um. Uh, it, it's probably even less forgiving in, in Nocturne, which is a, a Shin Megami Tensei game I have not played. But if you get ambushed in Div- Digital Devil Saga, you can get wiped out on the first turn if you're unlucky. And like you said, it's a dice roll and not, you know, being back attacked by an enemy on screen. There's a, yeah, there's like nothing you can do about it. Now, and um, 
it, it just that's just really frustrating to me because it, it, it either because either it's like that or in like a lot of the Final Fantasy games that were turn based and random encounter had had random encounters. Um, getting ambushed is more of just a momentary inconvenience. It just makes the fight longer. Like because in those games, it's not so much a challenge. It's just like okay, there's another another okay. I have to take a turn to reposition my guys and. Now I'm gonna get start the fight, Goody. It's like it doesn't add anything. I think it's. I just think it's dumb. And by and large, I think that a lot of modern RPGs where you can see enemies in the field really does does a lot to solve this problem. There are exceptions. Um, Shin Megami Tensei Four actually. Um, it, it, enemies enemies do appear in the field, but they also jump out at you randomly, and then you can get ambushed, and that's stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think. That- now I'm trying to do a solution-oriented approach to this. I think the two ways to fix this are either, you know, make them non-random, which we which we already you know talked about a little bit. Like a, you get a preemptive hit if you strike the enemy; they get the the they get the ambush if they strike you. That's that's a way to add fairness to it, as long as they don't you know materialize out of nowhere, like you just said. And and the yeah. other the other way would be to make him less punishing like having an, an enemy ambush be diff- increase the difficulty of the fight or inconvenience you is probably okay but if they can uh, team wipe you in a few seconds with an with a badly timed ambush then that 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 is not fair to the player anymore so like i, I don't i'm not against the idea of enemies having ambushes just make them more tolerable somehow like cuz I, I remember there's there's pincer attacks and back attacks in like final fantasy 6 and i don't remember them being the worst thing in the world because I think most of the time, I mean, first of all, Final Fantasy VI is not a very challenging game, so that that that's no. I mean that, that's probably a lot of it. But also, there was items that let that get, let you be immune to back attacks and pincer attacks, and uh, I I think I only really got really suffered during them if uh, if mm-hmm. I was spectacularly unlucky and they attacked someone that was already low health or something. But yeah, like I, I'm not against ambushes as as a whole, but. They have to find a way to make them fair. Yeah, I, I will say I love the way Persona Five handled encounters. Like just oh yeah, being able to, being able to kind of kind of stealth your way around it. Like that was good. I would play. Um, I mean, I mean, Persona Five has uh, story and character and tonal issues at times, but mechanically, I mean, I think it's one of the greatest RPG Japanese RPGs ever made. It's oh, yeah. everything is so stylish and awesome from moving to. The turn-based combat to everything. Like if they just completely took all the mechanics of Persona Five and slapped a new story on it, I would play that game tomorrow. <laughs> but Megami uh, Tensei Five will uh, will take some leafs out of its book because I'm really hoping that, uh, that 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 game brings back some of Persona 5's dungeon design. But and, uh, and, uh, Pe- just... and Peter, you know what they say about ambushes? Y- you never see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's probably the last episode oh. of Retro Encounter because oh. they're going to fire me for that one. <laughs> but uh, Retro Encounter, yeah, the the new host of Retro Encounter is going to be uh, Peter's cat Mo and Rob's cat Borscht. But anyway, but before that happens, uh, Dom, <laughs> Dom, do you have another uh, grievance to tell us all about? Oh uh, yeah, and uh, um, this is a steering a bit away from gameplay, more towards sort of tutorial area, I guess. And um, this is one of the reasons why I never ever gotten into sort of um, like isometric RPGs, in that I think that they just 
have way too much information sort of front loaded into the tutorial. What I mean by this is like, you know, you start up the game and like you, you sort of like, you just have this like whole screen of like your inventory and your stats and everything. And then the game just slaps this like 13 page manual in your face. And it's just like, all right, read through all of this. And then you'll have the basic gist of the game down. Yeah. A lot of old infinity engine games do this. Yeah. And like, uh, maybe that's just like part of me being of the part of the younger crowd and just growing up with like, you know, with games that sort of just like roll everything out over the course of a couple of hours. Mr. Awakening as... was my first Fire Emblem game. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as like, you know, as the game goes along. But yeah, these like isometric RPGs I find are just like borderline impossible to get into or like just get the drive to like go further. Cause like, you know, I don't want to read. A, like a 13 page manual on how the inventory and crafting and skill level up system works like why can't you just sort of like you know, like introduce elements of that as like you like complete the first like five or so quests of the game or something i think for me for me that's something i i'm, I'm kind of i'm with you on this one and uh, a lot of western rpgs for me are really hard to get into just because i find they're the at least the menu the menu navigation and the way they I, I, f- I find them to be kind of c- cumbersome and um, overly verbose and just dense in mm-hmm. general. Like I don't think it's fun to parse out these mechanics and this information. And I understand that there's an audience for that sort of thing who are really into the very a very in depth approach where they can, you know, they they can they have control because it gives you control over all this minutia. But I I much prefer a uh, a more simple ergonomic uh, approach to UI design. Yeah, yeah and uh, I mean, this is I guess attached to it. But I, I, when there's a lot of different statistics and different and that all require explanation, like if like if a game has three kinds of stamina and speed, agility, and dexterity, but that but they all do different things, and they only explain them. Uh, in in a big dump of like a front loaded info over, overlord like you suggested, Dom, that is not good at all. Especially if it's otherwise hard to find. Like if you mm-hmm. um if they have these over if they have a an over a sort of you know info dump screen at the beginning of the game, but then you can click through it and then maybe go to a menu to look up that thing if you want to look if you want that explanation later that helps a little bit. Or if there's you know good tool tipping where if you mouse over a a stat or a fact it'll it'll uh you know give you a brief explainer of what it is that that helps it a little bit but when they have these giant info dumps at the beginning they overwhelm you with information and statistics and then don't find don't make that information easily findable later that is pretty unforgivable yeah definitely so you know you better have that uh that wikia article handy just so you can <laughs> you know that like what like what spells require speed to dodge and what spells require agility to dodge yeah like, there is a page forum post that's like a newbie guide. And you're like, oh boy, I guess I'll have to do some research tonight in order to play my game. Once upon a time, I had patience for that. Not so much. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I mean, I like I I like I I really appreciate those kind of posts once I'm already invested into the game. But like, or just from like the get go, it's just like I'm just, I'm just here to re- like unwind. I don't really want to. Have to so process really, like I 30 think, different statistics to try and like just play the game. 
And like, it might also have something to do with me having, like, a desire to, like, min-max, like, as much as I can while playing. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, and, like, optimum paths. Yeah. And, like, as much as I love min-maxing, I, like, I, I don't want to have to, like, trudge through, like, 50 pages to do it. <laughs> so... Yeah. And um, this is a bit hypocritical of me criti- uh, criticizing things like uh, information overload, because I, I do enjoy a lot of games that are in part games of information. Like, I, I mean, I've talked about Monster Hunter a lot over the past couple of podcasts, and Monster Hunter has a lot of underexplained things and sometimes yeah. is a game. And sometimes is a game of information, but uh, they do at least Monster Hunter World does a better job of explaining its systems and having it and having information able to be looked up. But older Monster Hunter games were sometimes totally inscrutable and maybe tell you something once and never tell you again, which is you know the the heart of this grievance of DOMS. And and also and also I play I play um, I play a, a a MOBA game. I play Heroes of the Storm quite a bit, and that's a, a giant game of information. And you won't be good at that game unless you understand all 75 plus characters in it and that is an unfair amount of information to expect on, on a, uh, for a new player especially since that game has very limited tutorials so mm-hmm. like sometimes i find and games that are information rich really rewarding and sometimes i find them i find mm-hmm. it maddening and it's really hard to find a balance to make that to make that yeah. fair to new players it's yeah. kind of like learning the rules of a of a card of a new card game too. Yeah, like, oh god. There's a ton of mechanics that they. God, you want to talk? Just... You want to talk about information and mechanic heavy games? I mean, uh, tabletop Magic. people. Yeah, tabletop people might have us all beat. I mean, holy crap. True. Oh yeah. Nope. My uh, our our D and D group. Uh, I've been listening to my roommates uh, doing his campaign as well, and it's just there's just so much to take into account. But um, I think one thing. A way we a, an easy redress for this sort of thing, um, and I, this goes into just games with large tutorials as well. I think um, is if you make the learning curve that initial hump to get over less intimidating. I don't mind looking up stuff later on when it comes to mid maxing, or I want to get the most out of my experience. But mm-hmm. that initial that 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 first impression is so crucial for whether or not I'm going to want to invest that kind of effort in your game. I think, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this game a few times, but Breath of the Wild, that tutorial area, the Great Plateau, is brilliant. That is a great way to introduce you to the basic way to navigate that game. Um, it, it teaches you just the basics of just about everything you need to know before it lets you into the wider world, and that area is very is wide enough that you really get a sense for the scope of what you're going to need to do. I think it's fantastic how they how that, that whole area works. Right, and Peter, um, I'm going to use my turn now to talk about something that is almost the other end of the spectrum from Dom's complaint, and I'm going to focus uh-huh. on, another, on another Zelda game. I think you know where this is going. Um, I, I do. Yeah, sometimes when a game has a lot of information or something or stuff in it, sometimes they under-explain themselves or they give you a big explanation up front and then forget it forever. But sometimes their difficulty curve and explanation of all their systems is is done too much and too slowly and they and there is too much of a a, a phrase that I both like and dislike called hand holding. And uh mm-hmm. Peter, what Zelda game exemplifies an overabundance of hand holding? I mean Skyward Sword, but also Twilight Princess. Oh, I was thinking of Skyward Sword, but like because <laughs> because if I'm not mistaken, that game basically like has Fee explaining things to you and tutorials making you do things for the first several hours. 
By the first several hours, you mean the entire game? <laughs> For all of the several hours, I guess. Fee, fee does not. Fee never stops. <laughs> fee, oh my. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Sky, the experience of playing Skyward Sword is an experience of of figuring something out and then having Fee re-explain to you the thing you just figured out. Uh, thinking of an ex- example, there's a mid there's a mid area dungeon in Skyward Sword that's probably one of the better ones in the game. It's the uh, the sand ship. You have to use the time shift stones to change the ship from this derelict, washed up wreck to back when it was actively sailing, and that's really a really clever puzzle. Uh, you have to solve, except Fee will, every time you need to figure something out, Fee will interject and be like, Master, why don't you try looking looking up and see, and hitting the time shift stone with your bow and arrow? And I'm like, thanks, Fee. Could have figured <laughs> it out on my own, thanks. Or, Master, you are low on hearts. I believe that you need hearts. You can cut grass to find hearts. Right, and um, I haven't played Skyward Sword, so I've not experienced the joy of Fee being in my ear, explaining my every step and breath. But uh, I, I think that the way to solve this problem is not that different from the uh, from the one that Don brought up, and that is just like have have all of these tutorials in some menu somewhere for you to look up, mm-hmm. and have them explained maybe once early and then never again, and players can look them up either via a tooltip or a menu later. But when they're when they're persistently explaining and hand-holding for for huge parts of the game, it's like I mean I mean it's it's crazy. It's like, man, I wish I was playing Monster Hunter or Dark Souls so you, I wouldn't have everything explained to me. That's Get the f away from me. That's something that the Mario and Luigi games eventually came to grips with. Um because uh the jump from um uh, to the 3DS, Dream Dream Team has a lot of tutorials. Yeah, and it'll, and, it, and that's and that, that too has kind of a similar problem where you'll be 20 hours into the game or whatever, and they'll still be explaining new game mechanics to you. Um, and it, but in um, the in the first Superstar Saga, they do a pretty good job of that because every time you learn a new ability, you do a practice fight, and then they uh, and then that's that, and you do that even as you get persistent new abilities. But I, I don't ever felt like there was an excess of tutorials in Superstar and, Saga. No, and uh, and Paper Jam um, from basically from from that from in the newer games, what they've done is a you have you have a little separate menu where you can just go practice the brothers' attacks. Like you just basically it. That, that, that's good though. I want. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's that's a good way to to let you learn how to do the attacks on your own time without um, it, 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 without it, you won't screw up during a critical moment. But it also doesn't like halt the game hard to make you play a tutorial. And you also and, won't sp- um, spend items because um, bro, bros attacks in the later games are usually items that you collect or buy or craft. What they also do is is I think in Paper Jam, Starlo will literally just be like, hey. It's this is your first fight. If you want to know more, go click this little menu thing on the bottom screen, and then the fight proceeds. And then you don't need to. You you can if you if this is your first Mario and Luigi game, you can go read that tutorial. If this is your fifth game, then don't. Yeah, <laughs> you make, know how make it goes. The, make the tutorials option optional or hidden or researchable later is the way to solve that problem. 
Mm-hmm. And, and and really, I mean, I think the again these two problems the the info dumps early on and an overabundance of handholding those are almost two opposites of the same spectrum that are might be attached to the age of a game because it's really only newer games that have an excess of handholding and older games that g- completely hide most of the information from you and the, with the exception of games like Dark Souls that outwardly reject the idea of how of handholding, but it's entirely so, possible to overcorrect. Something. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Peter, I think it's your turn. Um, p- give us another RPG grievance that we want to address. All right. All right, boys and girls, settle down, and Uncle Peter's going to tell you a story. Stay a while and listen. Stay a while. This is a tale of a Hobbit. A Hobbit's game released in 2003 um, by Sierra Entertainment. This game was bad, but Peter played it anyway, because he really liked the Hobbit book, and there wasn't a film series to disappoint him yet. This game is a Zelda clone. It's a bad Zelda clone. It's a Zelda clone that has a lot of forced stealth sections. Okay, I give up, man. Just tell me the answer. I, I'm, not, I'm not guessing this one. What? What? Forced stealth sections in games are the worst. Uh uh That Hobbit game I played is probably one of the, the worst offenders of any game ever that I've played. Anytime a game forces just grinds to a halt and makes you sneak around things and older, old, I've seen so many older games were really, uh, were just awful offenders of this where you get caught and it's an instant game over. Like, <laughs> I, I hate that. I cannot stand it when games do that. It's, um, cause I don't mind, I, I, I'm not, and basically that, that Hobbit game from 2003 taught me that I'm bad at stealth. Not so much because, like, I can't, like, figure out. I think when you play a stealth game and the stealth and stealth is implemented correctly as a system of mechanics for you to explore and learn with, like in your Metal Gears and your uh, Breath of the Wilds. I'm going to keep coming back to Breath of the Wild because it's so good and it's fresh in my brain. But um, <laughs> I hate the stealth segment I'm currently dealing with in Breath of the Wild. <laughs> oh, no, the major stealth section in Breath of the Wild is bad, but the, the use of stealth in that game, like when you're using it to, like, using rain to conceal your footsteps as you, like, sneak up on enemies. Yeah, or, and... or, if you, or if you use, like, a stealth shroom to sneak up on enemies, that, that's fine. But the... I'm thinking of a specific instance. I, 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 fig, I figured, yeah, no, I, I think I know what you're talking about. And there's one in Skyward Sword, too, where you lose all your equipment, and then the game oh, is like... Oh, good! Yeah, yeah, Skyward Sword, <laughs> we're coming back around on you. Actually, no, actually, no. <laughs> Let me back that up. Let me back that up. Skyward Sword has a whole bunch of sections um, where you have to. Um, I don't even remember what they're called anymore. It was. It's been so long. But you, where you have to like collect a certain amount of. It's like it's like the Tears of Light from Twilight Princess, except now they're a forced stealth section. Oh, where God, with um, like and to think about a month ago during the favorite Zelda episode, I thought you guys were selling me on Skyward Sword a little bit. But now Skyward it's... Sword has a has good dungeon design pretty bad world design and a whole lot of repetitive junk you have to do goody and uh there's this one section there's this whole bunch of sections where you have to go back to each area of the game and collect a certain amount of items and if you get caught by an enemy it summons a unkillable beast that just pursues you endlessly and great it's uh it's yeah it's still set four spell sections and games can eat me (laughs) <laughs> so that's the long and short of it i've played enough of them all right so uh dom let's talk about something that you hate now so i'm going to talk a bit about dark souls 2 because you know <laughs> because dark souls 2 was such a like a mixed bag for me like as cliche as that is because like you know i loved all the sort of like 
mini sort of gameplay improvements that they made with like leveling and like different sort of magic builds being available. But like the one sort of that gameplay design that I absolutely completely hated was how when you aggro one per when you aggro one enemy, you aggro like everyone on the map. And this is not just like once or twice. This happens like multiple times over like this like the dozens of maps you go through in Dark Souls 2. And like quite frankly, it's kind of ridiculous because you know Dark Souls was like one of the selling points of Dark Souls was, you know, that visceral one-on-one combat. But it seems like but like for Dark Souls 2 it felt like that was completely ditched sort of in favor of, you know, sort of waving that uh, Bandai Namco marketing slogan of like hardest game ever. And it's like, how do we make game? How do we make Dark Souls harder than it already is? Oh yeah. Let's just make every encounter like a 5v1. Yeah. That's, that, that's what I've heard. I, I've, I've not, I haven't really, I, I don't have much experience with the Souls games for, from what I understand Dark Souls 2's big problem is that it's not, is that to make the game harder, they basically, they break a lot of the rules of engagement that make Dark Souls a tough but fair experience. Mm-hmm. One of the most like egregious examples of this is um, in the like one of the one of the late game areas of Dark Souls Two is called the Shrine of Amana, and I kid you not, on day one release they had like you would walk in and like these people wouldn't even be like like your draw like your render distance wouldn't even have these guys like in your field of view yet and yet you would suddenly get pelted with like three bolts of magic and because like you quote-unquote aggroed the mages you of course aggroed every single melee unit in the vicinity as well (laughs) who then like make a straight beeline right to your location it and they just like pummel you and like you can't get out of it either because like it's waist high water so you have like reduced movement in that so as you're getting, you know, as you're getting beat down by like six dudes, you're also getting pelted at from mages that you can't even see. And like, it was so bad that From Software actually had to patch the area <laughs> and like nerf like a large portion of the enemies in that area so that people would stop like raging. So can we file that under abrupt difficulty spikes as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, I, I, full disclosure, listeners, we're looking at a big Google Doc of <laughs> of uh, RPG pet peeves that um, to discuss this episode, and I think that this touches upon multiple items in our list. But so yeah, abrupt difficulty spikes, um, like uh, like having engaging one enemy turning into engaging five enemies quickly. There, Dark Souls Two. It sounds like you know. I mean, I, I I think Peter used the phrase "tough but fair." Like Dark Souls felt tough but fair. Dark Souls Two felt tough and sometimes unfair. If if I'm not mistaken, because I haven't played Dark Souls Two either. Yeah, it was. It's it's like it's uh how how do I call it? It's like super easy to cheese, but if you aren't cheesing, it's super unfair. <laughs> Let's put it that way. The, the yeah, there are certain builds that just like trivialize the game entirely. Uh, but like if you try and play it sort of like just sort of like the right and proper like sword and board it's just a complete you know it's a complete nonsense mm-hmm. the original xenoblade had a lot of problems where you'd aggro you could potentially aggro like an entire zone of enemies um it's not as egregious there as it is in dark souls but i, I did have that problem on occasion 
and I mean, shoot, the like the entire concept of of aggro, of aggro, which is sometimes called threat or hate, is a fun, foundational part of a lot of MMOs. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, everyone has seen the Leroy Jenkins video, but like, uh, <laughs> like, um, like, so like choosing when to engage enemies and draw their aggro is a big important part of playing those games, especially if you're a tank. But some, but when it's when you can't manage the aggro or like. Uh, engaging or aggroing one enemy unexpectedly turns into aggroing five enemies is is you know breaking its own rules like i like i i I mostly played a tank in ff14 and um i in the same quest i heard companions telling me i wasn't aggroing enough and i was aggroing too much so i you know (laughs) maybe i don't know anything um well what do you want from me (laughs) yeah it's and it's It, it, it was confusing, but uh, uh, and and I and also you know warriors are better than dark knights or paladins. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like the concept of aggro is something that's an interesting thing to explore in 3D action RPGs and similar games. And but they gotta play by the they gotta play fair when they do it. Mm-hmm. So um, it, this is my turn a little bit. And you know, uh, fellas, we've been talking almost entirely about mechanical aspects of RPGs, and that's fine because I mean this is I think that's mostly what uh, this episode's about. But Sometimes I have an I have annoyances about game storytelling, and th- mm-hmm. this, of course, this is this is very very subjective. I am not going to say this applies to everyone, or uh, you know, or or this is always bad. But plot twists in RPGs, I feel need to I feel need to be earned. Like if there's mm-hmm. a bi- and, and, and like plot twists themselves are fine. A lot of the time they're exciting or uh, and unpredictable and cool. And like I mean, like horror movies, I think almost wouldn't exist without the idea of the plot twist. But for one to feel good, it needs to be foreshadowed a little bit and has to have you re-examine everything you knew about that situation or that character before and le- and have you like be and for you to be able to see the breadcrumbs a little bit. Does that, mm-hmm. Do you follow me so? Uh, so far so but when a plot twist comes completely out of nowhere and is seems like almost a twist for the sake of being a twist it's it's terrible like it it just it um it 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 makes me just it just makes me angry at the story and i hate that do i smell the vestiges of tokyo xanadu you do again (laughs) because there's um now i don't want to spoil this game because it is fairly recent but in the last say four hours but but for real do you do you really care no i don't but uh, (laughs) let's say the last two dungeons um there are three characters who you've met in the who you met in the first hour in the game but in the last two dungeons one of them Okay, I'm sorry. Two of them ends up being members of secret societies that were secretly in the background of the entire story, and one of them ends up being like actually a demon and actually the final boss. And it's like, what are you talking about? This is <laughs> this is completely dumb. And uh, and like like they feel completely unearned. They there's there's no there's basically no way of knowing this ahead of time or even suspecting it ahead of time and they're only doing it for the sake of oh man wouldn't it be cool if and mm-hmm. I, I as a result like I was already a little negative on Tokyo Xanadu because I think it wasn't a very well written game when I was playing it even though I, I, even though some of the character designs were alright and a lot of, and some of the combat and dungeons were alright like I was I was ready to just throw my Vita directly into the trash after this which, is, <laughs> which would have been a damn shame because I love the PlayStation Vita but 
Oh, brother. Like, if you're going to do a character turn or a plot twist, foreshadow it a little bit. Like, make me suspicious or make me rethink what everything I knew and then think it was cool. Mm-hmm. Tokyo Xanadu was like 0 for 3 on those plot twists at the end. <laughs> and, it, and it was dumb. You know, and um, actually, I think what a series that sort of, you know, kind of fails this test multiple times in every entry to Boy. some degree. I think it's Don the Rock. Is oh, Tangarapa. Yeah. <laughs> is, and, like, especially, especially V3. Holy crap. Like, don't spoil it. No, um, no spoilers. But, like. Um, I, okay, I, I almost okay. disagree with you, Dom, because I think that the twist. Two, I feel like of, no. two of the twists I think I'm thinking of are at least reasonable. But yeah, well, like, here's. Like, I think Tangarapa V3 has progressively worse twists. And the final just is sort of like um, Kodaka just like throwing his pen against the white, like throwing his pen against like a whiteboard of ideas. Well, uh, okay, that, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to turn this into an argument about Danganronpa V three, but I, I, the ending was. And we was, all. Uh, I, I just feel like I just feel like the ending for Danganronpa V three was sort of how, how do I put it? I feel like like number two did a better job at foreshadowing its ending. Yes, I would agree v, with that. Whereas V three yeah, sort of. It felt like Kodaka like wrote like the first chapter and then wrote like the last chapter, and then he sort of had to like find a way to, to just make filler to fill the middle. All right, we're, we're like, not gonna we're not gonna go deeply into Danganronpa yeah. V three. There is an episode of Random Encounter that is a Danganronpa V three spoiler cast from I believe uh, near the end of twenty seventeen that might be worth checking out, listeners. But okay. and, for a, for a good example, another good example, I think what you're talking about though. Have we all played the Zero Escape games? Yes. I have not, but I've heard. Okay, so I won't... Are, are, are you talking about the end of Zero Time Dilemma? Yeah, Zero Time Dilemma... Zero, the thing about Zero Time Dilemma is less that, um... I think that there are elements to that twist that work in theory. The problem is that the the exposi- the execution is rushed, and the and a lot... And some of it is even straight-up ripped from the previous game. The, the way the twist is revealed to you is the same as it was in Virtue's Last Reward, which was a good twist... Yeah, but, it's it's not executed well in Zero Time Dilemma. And, and, like, I mean, a good plot twist, like, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, I, I think some of the character turns in uh, in the first Xenoblade Chronicles, where, uh, without going into major, major spoilers, uh, two or three characters that you've known for most of the game uh, have sort of surprise endings to their arcs. You, you know who I'm talking about, guys? Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I think... Those are better because there was cause for being suspicious of those characters, and there were scenes connecting those characters to certain events that made I, th- I think that made their twists, if not if if not necessarily justifiable, at least make sense. But I, I think that a plot twist is something that's a little challenging to put pull off, and for a writer to pull it off, it needs to have it needs to be earned either with foreshadowing. Or you know recontextualization, and mm-hmm. in video games they do that successfully rarely. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Danganronpa V three is a weird thing because that game has at least three crazy twists that are you know uh, are varying <laughs> levels of being justified. But uh, yeah, it, like I I like a good plot twist twist. I like a good surprise final boss sometimes. But like a surprise, the surprise final boss in Persona Four makes sense. The surprise final boss in Final Fantasy One has not made sense for thirty years. 
<laughs> and the and ne- ne- Necron is still out of kind of out of left yeah, field. Yeah, jeez, Necron and Zero Miss are kind of out of nowhere. And and but in FF one, I think it's the it's the silliest of all because the uh, basically there's multiple layers of time travel, making the first boss of the game also the last boss of the game, but in the past and the future at the same time. And I don't I don't even want to think about it. Oh, time travel. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like if you, want, if you want to listen to our trying to examine uh, what happens with Garland Chaos, we did in Final Fantasy one episode a few months ago uh, in I think early December or late November of 2017. Um, but where Rob Fenner very patiently tries to explain it to me, but he didn't totally succeed. <laughs> Many Final Fantasy games have this problem. I, I mean, nine is a poster child for it. I think with nine, they even have like a vestiges of Hades being the original final boss still in the code somewhere. Oh, um, that, that would have been cooler. Yeah, I think I think that uh, I don't remember where I read this from, but it's like they, they basically they examined the rest of the boss arena um, and uh, and Hades' model and yeah, there was it was apparently that was the original plan. And, that, um, and here's, here's one crossover you probably weren't expecting. Um, DC Comics also has an ageless spirit named Necron that's a force of ultimate death in the universe. And he yeah, sim- he awesome. similarly came out of nowhere in some uh, in I think one uh, Justice League story in the '80s, and then in a big Green Lantern story in the late 2000s. But he's yeah, he's about right. he's about as well explained as the Final Fantasy IX Necron. <laughs> yeah. Dark, I like I like Darkest Night, but yeah, Necron himself is kind of. Meh. <laughs> And and yeah, he was weird. Like Necron was like in one storyline in the '80s, and they totally revived him out of nowhere uh, twenty years later. Thanks, Jeff Johns. But okay, uh, <laughs> Peter, take a turn. Hmm. Mm, uh, I don't like it when games force you to play mini games. Um, <laughs> I'm really quite not a fan of this this whole concept. Um, uh, Final Fantasy IX being one an early example I can think of where you have to play a, a game of Tetra Master um, in order to progress the story. I don't like Tetra Master all that much. I think those break the flow of your game in a lot mm-hmm. of respects. I don't like it when games force you to do something that uh, isn't in keeping with the rest of the game um, uh, in general. But I think uh, Tetra Master's... Tetra Masters, I don't think it's a bad game. I think the section that forces you to play it does a terrible job of explaining how to play it. Right. I think I basically just randomly threw cards around and somehow won, and then I never had to play it again, which was great. (laughs) Blitzball Blitzball is another example. While I I know the Blitzball minigame has a lot of depth to it, and I think that it it did eventually grow on me as something, once I took the time to, to try and understand it, the way it is introduced in the story is really bad. I, I agree with that too. Um, I like Blitzball a lot. I got way too into Blitzball when I recently played Final Fantasy X. Um, I played about sixty or seventy games of it and got the ultimate. And I got the uh, the Waka World Champion sigil. I, I guess it's the Saturn sigil, which is the ultimate reward for it. So I got really, really into Blitzball. But the way they introduce it, where they force you to play a game that's slightly underexplained, and the your major the major condition for winning that game is completing a different mini game earlier on that gives you a special mm-hmm. blitzball move. Like it's the way they introduce it is out of the blue and not good. And like having your win pre- being predicated on getting the ject shot is also bad. So it's, even it's, then, it's yeah. not much of a guarantee. Yeah, really? Team. Well, no, I, I, if you, if you get the ject shot and know how to use it, then you're going to, you're going to score whenever you want to almost. But, but that comes from me who already understood the game pretty well. I would agree. Um, non-optional mini games that are introduced abruptly or in a annoying way 
I don't know if that's ever a good thing. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm playing an RPG to, you know, for RPG combat and dialogue and character building, not so I can play a card game that I hate. No, terrible mini games. Once again, don't go wrong about series. <laughs> kind of. You do well, have you do have yeah. to put up with all with with uh uh Hangman's Gambit and yeah. uh, that that one with the the surfboard in Danganronpa. And I feel like I feel like ha- like half the reason why I just found the game like mini games so like insufferable is because but it's like it's a pretty long and convoluted explanation of like what this mini game is. And like it's like the instructions are so like like they remind me of the way I code, which is basically incomprehensible and way too convoluted. So <laughs> it's yeah, and like just these terrible explanations into these like pretty boring mini games with a couple of like of the clues that they expect you to like infer from all the information you received is just like it's just crazy. Especially I think in the first one. Whether it's where the in the hangman in the hangman's gambit, there that was where like the order of the letters mattered. So like, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. so it was like a complete just a crap show trying to like guess some of the words at times, yeah, especially uh, in the later trials. Yeah, it, it's not only figuring out the puzzle ahead of time; it's figuring out the puzzle ahead of time and knowing the exact word they want. So like, yeah. if they, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make something up so there's no. St- so there's no story spoilers. If they shot them, you know, if Mr. Green shot them with the revolver in the library, do they want Mr. Green revolver or library? You, it's it not, it's not easy to tell. Yeah. But, and uh, and with Danganronpa again, this is a series I like a lot. We've recorded three episodes about them in Retro Encounter mm-hmm. and one in Random Encounter. But with their mini games, I, I am really of two minds about it because them having different games to play during the trial and have them be recurring. Sometimes it's like, oh, it's part of the game, that's fine. But sometimes the mini-games are just bad. Like, I really like Debate Scrum, and yeah, I, I really like, uh, oh, shoot. Uh, um, Mass Panic Debate? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think, cool. yeah, I like Mass Panic Debate also. Like, And and I and the, the rhythm games at the end of each trial I usually like, but not always. But, I mean, Han- Hangman's Gambit is terrible. Uh, sometimes the, the block-breaking game just is like, why is mm-hmm. this even here? Uh, Logic it's, Dive? Oh. Yeah, like sometimes, sometimes I I'm more forgiving about Danganronpa's mini games because it seems like the game is in part defined by those mini games, but they're mm-hmm. not all good. And when a mini game sucks and it's not optional, then that's terrible. So uh, Dom, trying to stay away from Danganronpa and Dark Souls, uh, do you have another yeah. grievance to air for the podcast? Um, yeah, and this is sort of um more. I guess this goes back into sort of the narrative thing where um, I've been, where I've, I've played a lot of visual novels. And um, one of the things that always sort of like bugs me is how like most of like the good visual novels, I guess, have these, have these like prologue sequences that are just way too long for their own good. And uh, I mean, like, and since a visual novel is basically, you know, it's just like an interactive book. So they have to fill up the hours somehow. So they just have, so like, whereas most games might have like a tutorial and an intro sequence that might last like one or two hours, visual novels can head into like 10 plus hour range, like no sweat. And like, you can be like, like dozens of hours into a visual novel and only just start hitting the main story. And yeah, I feel like this is a pretty big problem for stories I really like even like um, Steins Gate, 
or the Fruit of Grisaya or Muv Love Alternative even, where that game's prologue is basically an entire like separate two games oh, bundled together. So yeah. Basically just extremely like lengthy narrative prologues, which are just like which are also uh like a necessity because that's the way you get to know the characters and like that's what that's how you like get to care about the twists and all the, the development later on but i just feel like they should there should be a smoother way to like you know get, to like get yourself familiar with the characters instead of this excessively padded intro sequence and i i understand that grievance and and i almost would uh extend it a little bit to um because i haven't played as as many visual novels as you have i think some games this is almost tied into the unskippable uh cutscenes that we and dialogue that we talked about earlier but some yeah yeah, some games like I'm, i'm thinking of the vlr series in general i guess have lengthy um beginning sequences that are only introductions and dialogue that i wish that you i wish i could skip more easily because they Sometimes you have to play these games multiple times to get all of the mm-hmm. endings and all of the scenarios. And in, in VLR in particular, you have to play a very similar sequence of sequence of events where you're just looking at the first three rooms and uh, in as this uh, you know as a group of nine and meeting the other eight people, and you have mm-hmm. to do that, I think literally nine times or more. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and and it's a little different each time. Because so, like maybe you know maybe you'll go into this room with Clover or maybe you'll go into this room with Orchid instead of Clover for this time, but it's mm-hmm. but there isn't really a way to skip them wholesale or even to fast forward them in nine 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 you can fast forward scenes you've already seen before but they don't handle it quite the same way in VLR, but having that just be such a lengthy sequence that you may have to see multiple times is pretty maddening and i i think i would identify with this grievance a little bit more dom if i played as many visual novels as you but, <laughs> uh i but i sadly i haven't uh peter what are your thoughts on the on prologues that go on way too long uh i mean i know i'm with you guys on um on over long visual novel tutorials i think that's a way to for a game that really needs to sell you on its narrative i think just drawing it out and with an overabundance of text is like that is that doesn't that isn't engaging. Like um, I, I know I reviewed the Psychopaths uh, visual novel for the site. Um, I think last year, the year before, and that game had that game was just kind of interminable with how long it took to get going. Uh, when I'm, and even then for long tutorial sections, uh, Twilight Princess is one of my favorite Zelda games. That game takes a while to get off the ground. Um, uh, before you get to the first uh, Twilight section, I mean. Uh, geez. You're going to spend a lot of time running around Ordon Village, uh, herding goats and chasing monkeys and assorted nonsense. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times have either we told someone or someone's told us, oh, the game's really, really good. You just got to get over the first slow five hours. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and I mean, I, sometimes I will forgive it. And sometimes I'm like, well, man, what, what about those five hours? I'm never going to get those five hours back. Thanks. It's like how you have to get through, you have to get through the tutorial of Final Fantasy 13 30 hours later. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I this is a series that I will probably never talk about on Retro Encounter, but I think that God of War does it brilliantly by in all three of the fir- of the main God of War games having the first mission being extremely exciting and action packed. Mm-hmm. Like, give mm-hmm. us an exciting beginning or a hook that will at least get us through this prologue, even if there's more introductions or explanations later. Having a fast paced beginning can help a story so much. So, yeah, a, a lengthy, boring prologue is never a good idea. Take that, visual novels. I showed you. <laughs> and, uh, all right, I, I'm going to hit one big one because I think we've been going for over an hour, and I uh, I don't want to keep listeners here for three hours because I'm sure the three of us could complain for three hours. But uh, I, So I'm going to go oh. through a big one that I've been almost avoiding until now. Random encounters. I'm done with them. I, I don't think we need them anymore. Like it, um, RPGs are no longer in the 16-bit era where it was challenging having a lot of sprites doing things on the screen at once. I think that um, enemy encounters in RPGs that have combat should be like visible or engageable from a map screen or uh, before cutting into combat or just have all combat take place on the same screen, like like many action RPGs do. Mm-hmm. Uh, like your Dark Souls is and your Xenoblades, but the idea of exploring an empty map and then at random having a jarring transition to a battle map is is frustrating and annoying and unpredictable and takes agency out of the player's hands and I don't think we need to do them anymore. Mm-hmm. Or um, if we do them, give them some give the player some level of control. Or, uh, or, or, or at least give them a twist that makes them better to deal with. We, we, um, so, g- guys, I know all of us have played games with random encounters. Like, are are we ready to do away with them? <laughs> My answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, even for game for a game I really liked, which was Undertale, which um, had which had like a pretty clever way of dealing with random encounters. I still just found them so annoying, especially when. You know, I couldn't care. I, like, honestly, like at some points, I like I couldn't care less about like sparing these monsters or not. I just wanted to like get to the end game finally, because like I've also like it's also like because it's the same monsters you encounter a lot, and yeah, with Undertale, this gets especially bad near the end, where you know you're walking down the cast like the final area, and like you can see the final boss door there. And you're still getting random encounters, and you're like, I'm just like, why? <laughs> why? I don't like. I don't want like. Yeah, I spared these monsters a couple hours ago, but like, I don't want to have to do it again for the twentieth time, especially when it's so close to the end. I just want to get the game sort of over with at this point. And uh, one series or mini series of indie RPGs that I think also handles random encounters in a better way than usual is. Um, the first two uh, Z-Boyd Games RPGs, which were uh, Breath of Death 7, The Beginning, and Cthulhu Saves the World, both of them you know, are basically homages to 8-bit and 16-bit RPGs, so I think they wanted random encounters for that reason. But also, every area has a set number of random encounters. If you go to if you go to a menu, it'll say uh, like two <laughs> like like two out of twenty five encounters. So like once you hit the twenty five random encounters, there will be no more random encounters in that zone anymore. And I, I would rarely hit the cap when I was going through a new area, but having that cap and knowing that I could either clear them all out at once or that they they would end after a while was it did help a little bit. 
and and also let me pace my grinding and uh, and and sort of controlled how much I stayed in one area, which I which I think is good. But there's 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 ways to mitigate mitigate random encounters, but uh, there's I don't know. I'm I'm ready to be done with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, Peter, do you have any ideas for uh, either for random encounters or a new grievance for us? Uh, for me, pers- for me personally, my uh, my thoughts on random encounters are basically that I am like like you guys. I'm pretty much done with them. Uh, I really I the recent the old Mega Ten games are big offenders for me. Oh yeah. Um, I I just we mentioned this a little bit earlier with uh, the games as propensities for ambushes, but um, just the random encounter rate in Digital Devil Saga and Nocturne both are just interminable and i think after the persona games did such a good job of of adding these enemies into the dungeon fields and persona 5 in particular it's just really hard to go back um for for me that for me that example is uh is dragon quest games like the first eight dragon quest games have random encounters and i was maybe more tolerable for those when i played them for the first time uh which would have been you know the the early the, the early 90s for some of the nes ones and then the 2000s for for all of the others um, like I, I'm, I'm, I was okay with them then, but with the remakes of Dragon Quest seven VII and eight, where enemies were on screen and you could control the, uh, the encounters much better. It's like, I never want to go back to random encounters for Dragon Quest anymore. And, uh, I'm and Dragon Quest 11 looks amazing. And I am glad that they aren't going to have a traditional random encounter system. Yeah, no, same. It's uh, it's interesting to see that in one of the most traditional RPGs like ever, um, yes, that see, franchise is so known for adhering to tradition. But yeah, but seeing them moving away from such tradition is mm-hmm. uh, is refreshing in a way. Now, is there now? There's one series, and this is this is, and we've talked about Pokemon before. Pokemon is weirdly is adhere adheres to a lot of traditions. It has so across its many inst- installments, and um, one of these that stuck around consistently is Random Encounters. But it's but Pokemon is weird because at least part in part those encounters are relegated to only certain easily denoted sections of the game. Yeah, like like, like tall grass. Tall grass, and you can buy repels, which is helpful. You can buy repels, and then a big chunk of the game is focused on um, like like if you want to catch more Pokemon, I know a lot of people will um. Like you, they use the encounter system to their advantage. Like you'll go into the patch of tall grass and run in circles to try and trigger an encounter, or um, old areas like the Safari Zone where um, I think in the old Pokemon games you could um, you, the Safari Zone would only kick you out after a certain amount of steps were taken. Yeah. So, but you would stand in a single tile and just rotate your character to trigger <laughs> an encounter. No, I, I don't remember that. That's that's that's. I did I that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, it's just one of those hey, things man, where you, you got to catch those Tauros and those t- Kang- Kangaskhan and those Chansey, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and that's really a thing where P- Pokemon as a franchise, though, they've implemented some non-standard encounters, like Pokemon that appear in tall. You can see like them rustling in the grass. But and I'm curious to see if the new game on Switch, when if when they when they um, give us more info about that, will they keep random encounters? Will they go for a more traditional approach? Um, because I know I feel like Pokemon might be the only franchise where um, that has gotten away with it consistently, or at least it's it's they were so used to them in that franchise. It do, it never seems to come up as a criticism. You know what I mean? 
All right, well, uh, Peter, I'm going to give you one last one before we move into the second phase of this podcast. So P- please, Peter, air your final grievance. Uh, breakable weapons. <laughs> All uh, right. I mean, shoot, we can, this is back to Breath of the Wild and back to Fire Emblem, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, Breath, of, Breath of the Wild has an interesting... Um, I think I think the thing about Breath of Breakable Weapons is that they're just... I don't understand who thinks they're fun or who thinks this adds anything to the game other than frustration for the player. It's, a, it's, impose, it's imposing a limitation that I never want. And, it, and a lot of times it doesn't even make sense. Like, this isn't an RPG, but you'll play, like, a... That one Silent Hill game on PSP, uh, and like where like you can you'll have like you'll go through a dozen metal pipes that you can fit in your jacket, but they all break in two hits, or like <laughs> or your baseball bats or your te- uh, televisions because you can fit that in your bag. Like these, these are also my least favorite part of um, the old saga Final Fantasy Legend games. Where uh, there would even be like legendary weapons that you needed for that you wanted to save for a final boss or something, but they only had twenty uses. And uh, the one character that could uh, restore their their weapons' breakable number of uses um, also would have them divide in half whenever you equipped them to one, so that they would be easier wow. to break. And uh, like uh, I, I think one game that handles this in an okay way are the Diablo games because. When your weapon, uh, your weapons have durability, and when the durability reaches zero, like I think their their damage or something is way reduced, like is reduced by eighty percent or something. But with a, but for a trivial amount of gold, you could just talk to a smith and they would restore all your weapons and armor to max. Mm-hmm. So like like having that be a limiting factor is, I mean, still annoying because that means I have to visit the smith every hour or so. But right. But I mean, like losing your hard earned weapons is I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I I don't I don't know when anyone would want that, and I understand people like from a design perspective, like in order to impose something onto the player and make the game harder and make weapons seem more valuable. I guess I get that, but I don't ever want that. Yeah, and like I really don't understand when like super late game, as you mentioned, like legendary weapons have like these ridiculous durability restrictions on them, because then like it's sort of like. For people like me, it's sort of like, oh, I need to hoard this for like the next battle, which might be tougher. But then, like, when is that battle gonna be? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, it, the, the, the old problem where you uh, you end up fighting the final boss with fifteen mega elixirs and you only get ten turns. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> and it's um, yeah, it's just kind of, it was kind of, it's kind of stupid. Like, especially uh, going going back to Awakening, there is a like one of the last maps on there has like just a bunch of like very very tough enemies that have a bunch of like these legendary or like very high quality weapons but you look at their durability and they're only like 20 uses each yeah and, in, in in fire right. emblem uh, in fire emblem um fuin no Tsurugi, one of my favorite ones fire emblem 6 which has roy starring in it like one of the major thrusts of the game is finding the eight legendary weapons Mm-hmm. And uh, and all of them are rank S. So when you find the first one, which is the sword, you no one will be able to wield it yet because no one has S ranked sword use. So mm-hmm. y- you won't be able to use it until near the middle or end of the game anyway. Which is which is I think fair. But all of the legendary weapons that you're spending so much time to get only have twenty or twenty five uses. And yeah. so so I always end up saving them for the final two maps, where I do get use out of them. But it, it um it it you know. 
it diminishes the reward of finding those weapons because most, mm-hmm. mo- not all of them, but most of them are found in secret missions, and you only get to get the real ending if you find all eight. Yep. But and it's Breath- yeah, man. I was gonna say Breath of the Wild. Um, I think Breath of the Wild is is a weird outlier in the system in that um, the breakable weapons are still annoying in that game, but they have built the combat system in that game around like you're not going to be short of weapons you might be short but you're gonna but like the good weapons like really like like the ones that are going to do a lot of damage those ones are going to be fewer and far between but you're generally not going to be without something you can use and it's and and, and, and i think um this goes uh, i mean we've talked about breath of the wild a lot and i think we should continue talking about it but i i think um before we end the podcast each of us should talk about one game that has some of these grievances and some of these caveats, but we still like them in spite of those caveats and maybe because they use them in a, in a good way. I'm sorry to interrupt you a minute ago, Peter. But no, it's all good. Yeah. Um, uh, I think let, let's continue our breath of the wild discussion. Like, but with the, definitely with the knowledge that it, you know, has a bunch of these annoyances that we've mentioned throughout this episode. So, um, please let's continue breath of the wild. Uh, like it, it, it uses breakable weapons in a way that's a little more forgiving. Yeah, I would say so. And that, um, so when you're in Breath of the Wild, weapon your weapons have durability and will break. Some of them will break much more easily than others. But generally speaking, every weapon in the game uh, is kind of designed to be disposable. Um. Uh. So how, what? En- so what ends up happening is um you end up with a combat system where you hold on to a supply of weapons that you have for the, for any, your occasion. And some weapons are going to be in better situations. Like an example I'm thinking of when you're in, in a thunderstorm, metal weapons will um, draw lightning bolts to you. Mm -hmm. So you might want to have a wooden weapon on hand, but one way or another, as you're fighting enemies, those weapons are going to break and wooden weapons, especially are going to break more easily. And you end up in this situation where you're never short of something to use. If you're fight, if you're raiding a Bokoblin camp, um, they're going to have weapons lying around you can use. You at least for me, I tend to hoard items a lot, so I have like a whole collection of like swords where I'm like saving for special uses. Yeah, and and, it's, um, and it's, it's a little challenging in Breath of the Wild because your uh, your inventory is limited unless you find a bunch of Korok seeds. Yeah, right. And then you end up so you end up with this weird situation of like um. Are, are, all your weapons are basically short-term uses. You can't really get attacked. Even the Master Sword runs out of energy, and you have to like let it recharge, which is kind of depressing, let's be fair. <laughs> but there's a, there's... but again, the combat system's built around it. Like they've they've designed the game to accommodate this. Like in your, I don't. Th- I think you have to really try to like not have a weapon on hand. But it's it's an interesting way to work around a, that mechanic, and I'm not sure. It's entirely it's a perfect solution, but it's inter- it's interesting how Breath of the Wild handles it. There's also uh, one other thing that Breath of the Wild does with breakable weapons that I like, and you do it after you feat- you finish each Divine Beast quest, where uh, each, each basically each village around a Divine Beast has one signature weapon that's like a way above average version of that weapon. I, I don't, it's probably not the best in the game, but it's uh, for Gorons, it's the heavy weapons. For Zora, it's a spear. For the Rito, it's a bow. And for the Gerudo, it's a sword and shield. 
and they each have like an uh, like a signature village version of the weapon. Like it's called the Great Stone Breaker for uh, for the Gorons, and it has like sixty attack. It's really good, and and all of them are very good, way above average versions of these weapons. And it's they're the only weapons that you can actually have forged in the game. So you get a great stone breaker after you finish the Goron quest, and it will break just like a lot of weapons. But the but they also tell you straight up, hey, if you bring a weaker breaker uh, item and a and a diamond and give it to our forger, we'll give you a new great stone breaker, which is a nice way of mitigating like the like when you get this ultimate you know heavy weapon from the Gorons, it's like oh I never want to use this. I'm going to save this for the final boss. It like the knowledge that you can get it reforged helps a little bit and mm-hmm. and, and and having and having one of each type of weapon for, that are you know atta- that are also attached to story quests and let you do that is a good mitigating factor but still i don't know i still wish the weapons in breath of the wild were a little less breakable yeah there is a and there are like ways to like replenish some of your uh items and weirdly enough um this is this is this is this is kind of a weird workaround but if you have any of the zelda amiibos then you can um oh jeez yeah so each zelda amiibo is guarantees you a treasure chest with at least uh, with one item in it um usually some arrows the zelda one i think generally gives you bows but it can be it, i don't know it's 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 funny it's it's a weird workaround where you can like okay if you really want to make loot rain from the sky and you have a few of these plastic toys lying around uh you can make that happen but um <laughs> well i mean Breath of the Wild's great, and I guess they do make breakable weapons a little bit more tolerable. So, uh, Dom, do you have an example of a favorite game of yours that, you know, uses some of these grievances of ours in an interesting way? Um, so, for me, going back, it's uh, Dark Souls. And I think Dark Souls, uh, the first and third game in general, um, handle sort of overpowered AI really well. And what I mean by this is that, like, you know, in Dark Souls, even just, like, common sort of level one like the first enemies you encounter in the game like if they get a if they land a solid hit on you that's like half your life bar gone i like how from software has sort of designed the enemies in that they're overpowered in in certain aspects like damage or maybe sort of like health or like you know some sort of combination of those but they also leave um a lot of like room for you to play around it so like if if a swing takes off like half a like half your health bar, then usually it has a very noticeable charge time, or you can sort of read it from enemy movements, and you can you know you can put up your shield, you can dodge, or you can even if you're fancy you could parry it, and um, you know I like how I feel like that is one of the reasons why Dark Souls this you know despite its difficulty is so popular and so like so such a fun game to play is that um, it uh, from software really like left you these areas that you can exploit. And as you like learn to read the enemies, you can feel yourself getting better at the game as well. So I feel like that's one way or that's how dark souls just handles like having really strong AI units um, really well and quite elegantly. Awesome. Now uh, (laughs) I haven't played a dark souls game other than the, uh, other than the first few hours of of Demon's Souls for the PS3. But, I mean, I know of Dark Souls' lofty reputation, of course. I know I feel like I know a lot about the game, even though I haven't ever, ever played <laughs> it, just because I've heard so many people talk about it. Shout, shout out to Rob Steinman, emer- uh, editor and podcaster emeritus. 
yeah, Peter, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on um, how Dark Souls implements its difficulty spikes and a- uh, enemy AI? Like you, I don't have much experience with the series, so um, I um, but I have, I know it by reputation, and I have watched like I mean I've watched Let's Plays and stuff. Like it's one of those series where I know I feel like difficulty wise, I don't think I have the patience to get into this, but I totally see. Uh, from an objective standpoint, like, yeah, I see what it's doing here, and I appreciate that design ethos. And I do have Bloodborne, so I might have to get into that at some point when I can... <laughs> when I, If I feel like running straight into a brick wall for a few hours, I might decide <laughs> to play Bloodborne instead. But yeah, no, I, I'm to- I totally hear you, Dom. I think it's a really awesome way to work around, like, let's give the player a stiff challenge, but also give them the means to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Actually, Zelda does that too. I mean, what? <laughs> how many oh how many times can I work in a Breath of the Wild reference into a podcast? It's about as many I'll, times I'll, as Mike can work in a Monster Hunter reference. Uh, I think I've been able to do one Monster Hunter reference per podcast since late January of this so, year. So, 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 Mike, can you talk about how uh, Monster Hunter World puts you up against the Nergigante and then gives you the tools to take him down? Indeed, I can. Well, first of all, okay, the Nergigante is weak against almost every status, which people tend to ignore. But all right, I'll, I'll stop. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Aww. I'm not going to talk about I'm not going to talk about Monster Hunter World and Nergigante, even though I would love to. Uh, that will be every podcast in July of this year. No, it won't. Um, I'm going to talk about something that we went over a short time ago, but I deliberately avoided mentioning one specific game. Um, when we talked about random encounters. Uh, there's one game, or I should say two games, that handle random encounters, I think, basically perfectly. And uh, that is Bra- Bravely Default and Bravely Second. I think I've mentioned this in other, on other podcasts. But mm-hmm. in, in both of those games, there's a random encounter slider that you can access from a, from a menu. It's not, even hard to, it's not very hard to find. And you can basically set the random encounter rate uh, for, to, like, I think there's five settings, with the, the, the middle one being normal, the highest one being very frequent, and the lowest setting being none. So you can basically turn random mm. encounters on and off. And if you want to play Bravely Default like a 16-bit RPG where random encounters are periodical, you can just keep it at that middle setting the whole game. Or if you're like me, you can turn them completely off when you want to just go through a dungeon and, and grab treasure, or turn them all the way up to number 5 when you want to grind for job levels, or uh, or just or regular levels or what have you. I th- that's that's how I always want it. I want random encounters to be to be on a slider and having and pun but also being able to punish players that just have them turned off all the time by having boss battles or mid bosses or some unavoidable encounters to uh you know that 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 will be checks basically. Like uh, like oh you've you are you're level 2 and you've had encounters off the whole game. Well guess what? Here's a level 15 boss cuz you should be level 16 by now. Like I think that is a great way to handle it, and if we were to, if Pokemon were to redi- redesign themselves and and model their random encounters like Bravely Defaults, I think the thing to do would be have like a permanent repel that you can turn off and on on yourself, but you I... know, but still have frequent trainer battles that require that are unmissable and require you to have Pokemon at a certain level to be able to make it through. Yeah, I think that might be actually that's a fantastic way to work around that. I think that could work really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, please. If you do random encounters again, put them on a slider. Do it like be like bravely second, which is you know a game I like a lot, but has uh, has 
you know, uh, other mitigating factors that are less <laughs> less uh, redeemable than how they handle random encounters. Can we play the same four bosses four times in Bravely Default? In Bravely Default, I think it might be five times. <laughs> and uh, and you also have to go through the dungeons again, even though they're a little bit easier the second through fifth time. <laughs> Having a flashback spike, this isn't good. In Bravely Second, you do have to go through part of the game a second time, but you can skip a lot of it the second time through, and it lets. And when you do that, it lets you um, like pick the choice that you didn't pick the first time when you do side quests. So in, in in Bravely Second, it's more forgivable, but still kind of dumb. Like whatever we we might do a retro encounter on a on a Bravely game in the future because they are they are. You know they're 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 not brand new games anymore. Those came out in like 2012 and 24 and 2015, or was it 2016 for Bradley Second? I think 2016. Yeah, I was was a senior in college when that game came out. Yeah, so it was. uh, It was. God, you guys are all children. But (laughs) but yeah, it was a. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Okay. Well, uh, I, I, I like Bravely Default and Bravely Second a lot. I'm really looking forward to Octopath Traveler, which is being made by the same team. That, and, demo, uh, that demo was fantastic. Yes, oh, one, of the, one of the best Super Nintendo games of all time, isn't it? Yes, it made our list. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're talking about episodes that aired a month ago and whether Bravely Second counts as a retro game, I think we're about at the end of the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you so much for recording with me today, and thank you listeners for listening to us record this. Um, I had a lot of fun doing it. It's it's fun being negative instead of instead of you know overwhelmingly saccharine for an episode Let for the once. Hate flow through you. <laughs> hate leads to suffering, but not today. Um, so anyway, uh, we have a little bit of retro encounter housekeeping to do. Uh, next week we are having our first Super Mario RPG episode. We uh, I think first mentioned those back at, uh, a, a few weeks ago, back in April. But those are going to be a lot of fun to talk about. I like Super Mario RPG a lot. And uh, Peter, you and I are both going to be on that episode. Am I right? Yep. Yeah, looking forward to it. Um, I actually haven't played the original Super Mario RPG um, other than I I I think I played the first hour or so of it. Oh, okay. So this will mostly be a new experience for you then. For the most part, yeah, and um, as someone who, uh, I mean, I've professed my love for Superstar Saga many a time. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I know you like Paper Mario and Superstar Saga, so I, I, I had assumed you played this, but I guess I was completely false. I apologize, man. Hey, it's all good, man. I'm going, going, I'm going back to the roots of the Mario Mario's RPG history. Yeah, it's surprisingly storied RPG history. Yeah, it's it's a it's um yeah we we've talked about Mario RPGs on at least two other retro encounter episodes on the adaptations episode and the Mario RPG episode which you were also on with me Peter, but mm-hmm. uh, this time we're going straight to the source playing Mario RPG. It is the beginning of a of you know Mario's surprisingly gr- good RPG lineage and also uh, part of you know one of Square Enix's golden ages when they were really killing it um near the in the second half of the super nintendo's lifespan so mm-hmm. uh that'll be a lot of fun we haven't played planned out uh most of the rest of this month yet so we i i am not prepared to tell you what other episodes we're having other than mario other than two mario rpg episodes but you will hear about that later i promise uh listeners if you want to get in touch with us the best way to do so is to email retro at rpgfan.com you can also go to rpgfan.com and uh, comment on the boards there or visit the facebook page discord page twitch page instagram page or 
did I miss anything? Uh, we also have we also have a YouTube page where we keep some of our uh, videos and and, uh, and music footage and and archive our streams. Don't forget. That's right. Yeah, we have uh yeah we we have archives of all of our podcasts and streams and features and news and you can there is just so much RPG fan content for you to enjoy. Please seek it out and enjoy it. Also, review us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever, however you're listening to us. We will read every email and message and feedback left for us. Uh, and we prefer constructive criticism, but you can say whatever you want. We will read it. <laughs> so um, starting with you, Dom, uh, what's the best way for listeners to reach you? Uh, you can find me on the forums and on the Discord server as DH Candy. All right, and uh, Peter, same question. Um, I am not on Discord, and we don't really. Um, um, but um, you can reach me at at I Have Fury on Twitter. Um, also on the boards um, that we don't really use much anymore. Um, I'm not like I said, I'm not on Discord yet. But if I were to join Discord, I would probably also be I Have Fury on there. So uh, I guess keep an eye out. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and I am Monsoon on the forums, that, but I don't really post anymore. I am Monsoon Mike on Discord, but I only really stick to the podcast uh, channel. And my uh, Twitter is at TheRealMonsoon for, uh, for most of my Twitter posting, and at Evoker for Dogs when I get weird and start posting about Japanese superheroes. <laughs> So I, th- I think that about does it. Uh, we have, you know, ex- uh, excised a lot of our negativity today, and it feels good, guys. It feels good. Mm-hmm. It feels pure, purifying, refreshing. It's just like d- dousing oneself in the waters of Lake Minneton. Thank you. Good night. Good Take care, folks. <laughs>